0: The next uh, speaker, having just talked about Croy, definitely was there. I saw Raj at Croy. Uh, Raj Gandhi is a professor uh, of medicine at uh, Harvard Medical School. Uh, the brother of Monica Gandhi, who's one of my great buddies, uh, colleagues uh, at University of California, San Francisco. Um, and Raj has really been a, a terrific educator and scientist, and will uh, tell us all we. Um, learned or should have learned. Craig. Thanks, Roger.
1: Thank you for all being here. Uh, Croy this year was absolutely fantastic. It's, I think, one of the, the best conferences in our field, so it's a pleasure to be here. I, I don't know that I can cover the full breadth of what was uh, the rich uh, meeting of CROI, but I'll do my best to go through some of the highlights. Um, so what I'm going to do, uh, first of all, these are my disclosures, and then the learning objectives here. What we're going to talk about in the next 30 minutes, uh, 30 minutes or so, is to assess some of the challenges involved in eliminating HIV from the U.S. There was a really interesting plenary that launched the conference on the goal of eliminating um, HIV in the United States. We'll talk about new medications. This is often the the favorite part of of CROI. New medications for treatment, but this year also for prevention. And then we'll talk about some of the complications of antiretroviral therapy. What's interesting about CROI is no matter how many years we've been doing this, there's always new and really exciting information, and, and this year was no exception. So let's start with epi, HIV epidemiology, with the focus being on can we eliminate HIV? Can we end the epidemic? So on the eve of the conference, this was not at the conference, but just the week before the conference started, the CDC um, released some really interesting numbers. So let's go through a couple of things. So these are the new infections in the United States between 2010 and 2016, and what you can see is that these are about 40,000 or so new infections in 2010, a slow but steady decline, then starting in about 2013, really a flattening out of that curve, what the CDC is calling a stalling of our decrease in the HIV uh, incidence. When you drill down into some really important um, uh, populations, the age groups was one of the populations of importance. Young people, ages 25 to 34, between uh, those two benchmarks, actually the number of HIV infections increased. And when you looked at uh, African American gay and bisexual men who were in that same age group of ages 25 to 34, or uh, Latino gay and bisexual men in that same age group, a substantial increase. So there are important populations that we really need to focus on if we're really uh, going to get to ending the HIV epidemic. Many of you have probably seen this. Uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, at the opening plenary, went through the plan, uh, the United States plan, to try to eliminate HIV by, um, in the next 10 years. And there's four pillars that you'll see there. Diagnosing all people with HIV as early as possible after infection. Treating the infection rapidly and effectively uh, to change sustained viral uh, suppression and basically prevent transmission from uh, someone who's HIV-infected to their sexual partner to protect people at uh, risk of HIV using uh, preventive measures, including pre-exposure prophylaxis. We'll talk about that at some length uh, during the course of this program. And then one uh, topic I'll touch on in one of the CROI highlights is respond rapidly to detect and really intervene upon um, these HIV outbreaks that are going on around the country. The pillars, uh, the, kind of the basis of all of these four pillars, really, are the people in this room, the HIV health force, because we can only do all this uh, because of the people in this room and people like us uh, that are really committed to implementing uh, these four pillars. You probably also know that the resources are being targeted to the 48 highest burdened counties in the United States, as well as D.C. and Puerto Rico, as well as seven states. These are the counties in kind of the blue dots and the states uh, where the HIV epidemic is mostly rural. Uh, if you look at the kind of the immediate environs of where we are now, uh, the counties that are being targeted in the New York City metro area include two counties in New Jersey listed there, as well as several counties here in New York State. One of the plenaries that I thought really, um, I was rather surprised, it was on molecular surveillance. It was one of the most compelling plenaries, and I would urge you to look at many of these plenaries online. They're available through um, the CROI webcast. But Alexandra Oster gave an outstanding plenary on the use of molecular surveillance to augment our ability to identify and and intervene upon these um, outbreaks. And I just wanted to highlight one um, um, example from Massachusetts. There is an ongoing outbreak of HIV among people who inject drugs in Massachusetts, over 125 people uh, in the last couple of years. What the CDC does is they actually gather uh, near real-time HIV sequence data. When you send an HIV genotype, that data enters into a, a protected database where the sequences can be compared to each other. And then what the CDC can do is they can look at exact matches or near-exact matches to try to get, essentially, a molecular linkage. You know, these two sequences probably indicate two people who transmitted um, back and forth. And so they released that information to local health departments, and it was used in Massachusetts to augment the the standard epidemiologic linkage, the the partner services that has been going on for for a long time, to try to look at HIV uh, outbreaks. They augmented that with molecular surveillance. And what that resulted in was an increase in the number of people linked to this outbreak by 44%, so really a substantial increase. And what Alexandra Oster and the folks who um, presented these data argue for is a a coupling, a multi-pronged approach where we're doing standard epidemiologic um, linkage, that's still the bedrock, but augmenting it with the CDC-derived molecular data. So that was one of the uh, really interesting epidemiologic studies that that came out of CROI. Okay, so let's now switch. Um, many of you uh, heard about some data that came out of CROI around cure, so let's get into that now. And I'm going to actually ask um, you to vote, so pull out your cell phones again. And um, we're going to ask, HIV cure has been achieved with which of the following? Very, very early antiretroviral therapy, soon after acquisition of HIV, all over here. <laughs> uh, stem cell transplantation, gene therapy, all of the above or none of the above. So Paul asked if you'd been at a Croy Update before. I did one of these recently in Massachusetts and I'll tell you, after you vote, what people in that audience said, but go ahead and vote. good number of you are voting. see what you think. Okay, so 70% said um, stem cell transplantation, and 14% of you said none of the above, which was about the same as the number in Massachusetts when I presented this, skeptical about the fact that there is an HIV cure. So let's go through what we know about HIV cure. So what was presented at this meeting was what is now being called the second case of HIV remission. Um, the the uh, presentation of these data was on the same day that the publication was released in Nature. So if you want to know more about the details, then I'll go through some of the highlights, you can go to this publication. Pablo Tebas sent me this really nice slide. For those of you who might recognize him, this is Timothy, Timothy Ray Brown, the first pu- person cured of HIV at the meeting at CROI, meeting with Ravi Gupta, who's the person who presented the second case of what we think is going to be an HIV cure. So kind of a, a nice a conjoining of, of uh, the, the first cure and hopefully the second cure. So this is what's being, this, these are some highlights of what is now being called the London patient. So this man was diagnosed in, with HIV in 2003. He didn't initiate ART until 2012. And at that same time, he was diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin lymphoma, and unfortunately did not go into remission with, with first-line chemotherapy. had to have multiple rounds, including salvage chemotherapy, in order to achieve a, a, a remission of his lymphoma. In 2016, he had a stem cell transplant from a donor that lacked the co-receptor for HIV. The donor was homozygous for CCR5, um, Delta 32, had a Delta 32 mutation, and lacked that co-receptor. The recipient, the London patient, had reduced intensity conditioning. This is unlike the Berlin patient, unlike Timothy Ray Brown, and did not have total body irradiation, so a less um, intensive uh, uh, um, conditioning. Nevertheless, the course was quite complicated. The the London patient had EBV reactivation, got rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 antibody, targets B cells, But there are data that rituximab also reduces CD4 cell counts. He also had a CMV reactivation, had to get ganciclovir, and had mild graft-versus-host disease that did not require extra therapy. The London patient became 100% donor, achieved 100% donor chimerism. That is, all of his cells were replaced by the donor cells that lacked the co-receptor. And then 16 months after the transplantation, this person's antiretroviral therapy was stopped with very close monitoring. These are the uh, data that were shown. Why don't you focus on the blue line here. This is the plasma viral load. The plasma viral load over the course of the ensuing 18 months essentially stayed undetectable, including on a number of occasions using a single copy assay, a research assay. So why do we think that this person might be cured? There's no plasma viral rebound for 18 months. The HIV was undetectable on multiple tests of the reservoir, including a virus outgrowth assay. And just like Timothy Ray Brown, there's declining HIV-specific immune responses. Now some of you um, were skeptical, and I think it's reasonable to sound some cautionary notes here. In the London patient and in a similar case that was presented in a poster presentation, almost identical kind of procedure called, in a person now being called a Dusseldorf patient, all of these seem to be in Europe so far. We'll see if we can get a New York patient uh, sometime soon. Um, but in all of these cases, um, HIV relapse is still possible. We know that sometimes it can take months for HIV to relapse, and in the Mississippi child it took several years. So longer follow-up, the authors really highlighted needs needs to be done. Another cautionary note, um, Greg Gonzalez made this point in a really nice article that he published in the New York Times just after the meeting. Stem cell transplant is only appropriate in someone who has an uh, a indication for a, such a high-risk procedure, such as a malignancy. and. And the title of um, Greg Gonzalez's article is, This is Not a Cure for His HIV. Uh, The the third cautionary note, the London patient's virus, as well as the Berlin patient's virus, use CCR5, that particular co-receptor, but there are people with HIV who use other co-receptors. And so we need to target those other co-receptors as well. Nevertheless, I think the reason why there was excitement and is excitement and should be excitement is that this gives us at least a a, um, some insight into a way forward. That is, if we can modulate CCR5 and other co-receptors through less toxic measures, for example, using gene therapy, and Pablo Tebas presented a small trial of of that, uh, then we might be able to take an iterative approach towards getting us closer to to an HIV remission. Okay, so the next uh, topic that kind of uh, has some clinical relevance but also was in the CURE session, was why do some patients have low-level, non-suppressible viremia on ART? So I'm going to ask you all a question, which is, do you care for any people with HIV with non-suppressible viremia? And what I mean by that is they have a, a detectable viral load, usually very, very low, like 20 copies to, say, 100 co- uh, 20 to 200 copies, Um, They're on ART and don't have a suspicion for non-adherence. So this should be a quick one. Do you have any patients like that, yes or no? Go ahead and vote, and I think we'll get the answer probably pretty quickly. I think I saw a number there. It looked like yes. Okay, so a good proportion, actually, the majority of you have such a patient. So now I'm going to ask the 71% who have such a patient, uh, what do you do with them? Uh, What do you do with someone who has this low-level viremia? Go ahead and vote. Do you change their ART regimen? Do you intensify their ART regimen? Do you leave them alone or something else? And if you say something else during the question and answer, you have to tell us what that something else is. Go ahead and vote. Again, this should be a, a pretty quick vote. About 70% of you leave them alone, but then about 25% of you uh, make an intervention, so that's interesting. So there were data presenting at this meeting that I think is relevant to this particular clinical dilemma. So um, this was a study done by John Mellers and colleagues of 10 patients who have this non-suppressible viremia. These are individuals where there's no suspected non-adherence. Their median viral load was about 100, and they've been on ART for a reasonable amount of time, a little over three years. What they did is they essentially sequenced the virus in the plasma and they sequenced the virus in the cells and what they found is that the virus in the plasma all had, and the virus in the cells all had the same integration site. That means that they're all coming from a clone of cells, not from ongoing viral replication. If you had ongoing viral replication, there's good data suggesting that you'd have integration at multiple different parts of the genome because the virus is turning over. So there was no evidence of drug resistance um, and, there was no ev- and there was no evidence of inadequate drug levels. That is, the drug levels seemed fine. So the implications are that intensification or ART changes would not be expected to be um, uh, effective in someone who is really adherent, and so these people are in that category. And they call these cells that make virus clones, and they may be another area that we need to focus on if we're going to get rid of HIV. We might get, need to get rid of those clonally-expanded cells that are making virus. Okay, so now we're going to switch gear. Um, Trip Gulick this afternoon is going to take us through a number of PREP cases, so I'm going to really just highlight one study from the meeting on PREP. And this is a study called DISCOVER. You'll hear about this more over the course of the day. But just to set the stage, this was um, an industry-funded trial that looked at men who have sex with men and transgender women. Important point here, this study did not include any cisgender women. Um, these were people who had high risk of acquiring HIV as ver- by virtue of the fact that they had sexually transmitted infections or condomless anal intercourse, and they randomized them to either get TDF FTC, the FDA-approved um, um, medication for PrEP, daily, or to get TAF FTC uh, daily. And the primary efficacy endpoint was HIV incidence. They did this analysis when 100% of the participants had been on the trial for 48 weeks, and about half of the people had been on the trial for 96 weeks. Let's uh, reflect for a minute as to who was in this trial. This trial is called DISCOVER. I mentioned already that it was MSM and transgender uh, women, no cisgender women, so in terms of its generalizability, an important uh, point to keep in mind. The median age was young, about 34. Um, It was 84 percent white, only 8 percent African-American, so much lower in terms of African-American than the um, prevalence in the United States. Um, 24 percent were Hispanic and 1% to 2% transgender women. And about 16 to 17% were taking PrEP uh, prior to entry in the study. They stopped whatever PrEP they were taking, and then they were randomized to one of these two arms. So here are the results. Um, There were 22 um, HIV infections in over 8,700 person years of follow-up. So the incidence of HIV was very, very low, and it was low in both groups. It was low in the TAF FTC group, which is on your left, and it was low in the TDF FTC group. What they, uh, when they looked at the incident rate ratio, that is, comparing those two incidences, uh, there were, the TAF FTC was non-inferior to the TDF FTC. So that was its, its main primary endpoint. A couple of points I want to make here um, uh, 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 about this particular study. So five participants out of those 22 probably had acute HIV during the kind of the entry into the trial that was recognized later. So some of those people were in the throes of acute HIV. What about resistance? They did see resistance to FTC in four people, uh, but those were people who also had that acute HIV um, at baseline, and that's probably why they developed resistance. No one developed resistance to tenofovir. Fifteen of the 22 seroconversions, so total, again, out of these many thousands of people, uh, 22 seroconversions, 15 of them, when they looked at dried blood spot uh, levels, another way to measure antiretroviral adherence, 15 of them had low uh, tenofovir levels, probably irregular adherence. So a really important trial. Um, The other notable finding is that these people were at continuous risk of HIV. They had a high rate of sexually transmitted infections, about 15% per study visit. And if you look at some of these numbers, the rates of gonorrhea and chlamydia were about um, uh, 47 per um, 100-person year, so really, really high rates of STIs as well as high rates of syphilis. So these people were clearly at risk of uh, acquiring HIV, and yet the incidence was very, very low. When they looked at the bone and renal effects of TAF versus TDF, the results were quite similar to what we seen in treatment trials of TAF versus TDF. The TAF FTC had a smaller impact on bone mineral density and had a smaller impact on kidney markers than the TDF formulation. So I invite discussion of this over the course of the question and answers, as well as I think when we get to the PrEP cases, I think a really important study and one of the highlights of CROI. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's go on to ART, uh, antiretroviral therapy updates, and we're going to focus on three specific um, areas. One is injectable ART. We heard about injectable antibodies. Now we're going to talk about injectable ART, and we're going to talk mostly about long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine. On the horizon, there's a long-acting capsid inhibitor that I'll mention briefly, and then complications. We'll talk about weight gain, and uh, integrase inhibitors, one of our speakers, um, uh, have important data as well as other studies uh, on this uh, particular topic, so I'm sure we'll talk about this over the course of the day. Okay, so let's start with injectable ART, and we'll do cabotegravir and rilpivirine. What are these drugs? So cabotegravir is an integrase inhibitor. Rilpivirine is an NNRTI. But what's interesting about these is that you can formulate them in nanoformulations that have half-lives of months, not days, but months. There have been promising phase 2 results in the very appealingly named Latte 2 study. And so now there was uh, data from this particular CROI on two phase three clinical trials that are now being presented, and I'll mention one that's ongoing. So the two trials that were presented at CROI were the ATLAS trial. ATLAS was for people who were already suppressed, and then they got switched to monthly intramuscular rilpivirine, or they continued oral ART. And FLARE was for people who were just being started on ART. They were treatment naive. They got put on oral ART, and then at about six months or so, they either um, continued oral ART, or they got switched to um, cabotegravir ripivirine. A study that was not reported because it's ongoing that you should keep your eye on is the ATLAS2M study. This is in suppressed people with HIV comparing every four-week dosing of cabotegravir ripivirine to every eight weeks, so uh, 12 times a year versus six times a year. So that's still ongoing. Okay, so this is ATLAS. ATLAS, again, is the randomized, open-labeled trial, obviously open-labeled, people are getting injections, and people who have virologic suppression. And what you can see, it's over 700 people. They get randomized to uh, continue their oral ART, get switched to uh, um, an oral cabotegravirate, and then get put on the uh, long-acting therapy. Who was in ATLAS? Median age of about 42, 33% female, They'd been on ART for about four years, uh, on average, and the baseline ART was kind of what you'd expect, NNRTIs, uh, integrase inhibitors, and PIs. Here are the virologic results. Virologic non-response at week uh, 48 was very rare, only about 1% in the oral arm and in the ejectable arm, and conversely, virologic suppress was over, a success was over 92%. And when they compared the injectables to the oral, uh, the injectable was non-inferior uh, to the oral. Uh, so that was a, a good result for the injectable. Let's now switch to flare. Flare, again, is the one in people who are starting therapy for the first time. Uh, they all have to have a viral load over 100, a little over 800 people, or sorry, about 600 people uh, entered it. Um, half of the people got put on an oral therapy, and half of the people started with oral therapy, and then switched over to the long-acting. Who's in FLAIR, same median age, a little bit younger now, about 34, 22% female. This was not a very low CD4 count group. It was only about um, 7% had a CD4 count less than 200, but about 20% had a baseline viral load over 100,000. Here are the results from FLAIR, also very good results. Virologic non-response, about 2%. Virologic success, a little over 93%. And again, the injectable was non-inferior to the uh, oral therapy. A really interesting point that came out in the discussion for which we don't have an explanation, there was a small number of participants who had resistance emerge. uh, And this is just in the injectable group. There were a few others in the oral group as well. But what was interesting and as yet unexplained, hopefully someday we'll be able to explain this, is that the resistance that emerged was mostly in people from the Russia sites. The study was done all over the world. And most of them, in fact, all of them had the A1 subtype, the A1 clade of HIV. And you can see some of the mutations that emerged were um, uh, integrase inhibitor-based mutations. So maybe during the question and answer, we'll have time to reflect on that or during the panel discussion, but still something that's unexplained. A small number of people, uh, more data needed. What about the safety and tolerability? Injection site reactions were very, very common, about 60% but they tended to diminish over time. They were relatively low grade, grade one and two, and um, they rarely led to treatment discontinuation, only about 1% of the time. And high participant satisfaction, Now, obviously these people volunteered for a study, but the satisfaction was, was very high, and there was a preference for the injectable therapy. Something further down the pike is a capsid inhibitor. This is um, a capsid, a capsid inhibitors work on multiple parts of the virus life cycle. Uh, Some phase one data was presented in healthy volunteers. The point of this slide is that this particular capsid inhibitor lasts for a long time. The levels of the capsid inhibitor were above what they thought needed to be for therapy for over 12 weeks, Um, so sustained exposure after a subcutaneous injection, and there's a phase one study starting in people with HIV. And then the last topic on ART is um, on integrase inhibitors and weight gain. Uh, The first study I want to present is from the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. This is over 970 adults who switched to an integrase inhibitor-based therapy. It's an observational study. Women, blacks, and those over 60 had the greatest weight gain, and this is kind of the the weight gain curve. The red um, line is where people switched from whatever regimen they were on before to an integrase inhibitor, and you can see that weight uh, began to go up substantially after that. Of the different integrase inhibitors in this particular study, dolutegravir was associated with the greatest increase in annual weight as compared to other integrase inhibitors. There were multiple other studies that um, presented similar kinds of data. Because there were so many, I, I put them all on a, on a single slide. Another study showing an association between integrase inhibitors and weight gain was from the NA This was a gigantic study of 24,000 people. Again, integrase inhibitors and PIs in this study were associated with more weight gain than NNRTIs. And in NAACORD, dolutegravir and raltegravir had the greatest weight gain as compared to elvitegravir. Two other studies that uh, had similar findings, one from the HOPs cohort. Uh, in this, the BMI trajectory was highest in those who received dolutegravir. And in the WISE cohort, a group of women um, uh, that were followed similar kinds of results. There were two studies that either showed mixed results or or didn't show an association. The TRIO study, there was an association with integrase inhibitors and weight gain in some analyses, but not all. And then a study that I think is interesting, it's done in HIV-negative people. This is a prevention study using cabotegravir, did not show an association with weight gain, maybe suggesting that whatever this effect is, and we don't know what the effect is yet, might be related to the interplay between the drugs and the virus in people with HIV. So what's my take? I think they're accumulating data indicating that integrase inhibitor-based ART may be associated with greater weight gain than some other regimens. I think there are some limited uh, randomized trials, but we need more data to really kind of make that point and make it um, definitive. But I think there are really suggestive and important data making this association. Whether there are truly differences between the integrase inhibitors I think is still uh, to be determined, and we'll see. There are some data coming, down the pike between Big tegavir and dolgutegravir, and we'll see where that plays out. Uh, The mechanism of weight gain is really the key issue and the distribution of fat. Is this lipodystrophy? Is this visceral fat, or is it not lipodystrophy? That we don't know yet. And the bottom line is the last bullet. We don't know what to do about it. We don't know if you switch people off an integrase inhibitor whether the weight gain will, will diminish or not. Okay, in the last three minutes, four minutes, I will go through a couple of highlights on co-infections and comorbidities. This is my last question for you. Um, Which of the following antiretrovirals can't be given with a treatment for latent tuberculosis, which is weekly, INH, and rifapentine? So these are, many of you are maybe using a combination called 3HP, weekly, INH, and rifapentine to treat latent TB. Which of these can you not give, efavirenz, raltegravir, Dolly Bear and Big Bear or Big Bear. And I will tell you as you vote. This is a tough one. I realize that the answer to this question changed during the meeting. So, <laughs> okay. Let's look, let's see what people think. Okay, so let's go through this. So this is interesting. So most of you voted for efavirenz, and then kind of a a mix of people voted for the different integrase inhibitors. So these are the treatment options for latent TB treatment in people with HIV. So standard INH for nine months. We've done it for years. Rifampin for four months. There's actually reasons to prefer that over INH for nine months. Weekly INH and rifapentine, 12 doses over three months. This is the 3HP regimen that I was asking about. And then just published in the New England Journal late last week is a study that establishes the efficacy of daily INH and in rifopentine for just one month. So this is the shortest, and you can read more about it in that particular article from last uh, Thursday. So what about drug-drug interactions? This is the point of the question that I asked you. So it turns out that efavirenz and raltegravir are okay with that weekly uh, isoniazid rifapentine Those are okay in terms of drug-drug interactions. Bictegravir is actually the is the correct answer here, because bictegravir gets affected by rifamycins, like rifampin and rifapentine, and at least for rifampin, you can't overcome that by doubling or increasing the dose. So what about dolutegravir? Okay, so prior to this meeting, there was a healthy volunteer study of 3HP, the weekly dosing with dolutegravir, and of the four people who started that study, two of them got really sick and actually ended up in the hospital. Now, these were healthy volunteers, didn't have HIV, and but that led to concern and led many of us not to give 3-HP if someone was on dolutegravir. But Kelly Dooley at this study presented the DOLPHIN trial. There was actually multiple DOLPHIN trials. This was one of them. And this is a single arm study of dolutegravir-based ART in 3-HP, now in people with HIV, the relevant population, not in healthy volunteers. They all had suppressed viral load. They needed treatment for their latent TB. There were 60 people, so a much bigger study than what had been reported. They all got switched to daily dolutegravir. Those really in the know will realize that usually with um, rifampin, at least, we double the dose. Here they gave daily dolutegravir, and then they added on the weekly INH and rifapentin, and then they did a complicated PK study. But here are the bottom line results. In those 60 people, the co-administration of dolutegravir and 3HP was well-tolerated. There were no adverse events leading to withdrawal there were no serious adverse events because rifampin uh, can reduce dolutegravir levels they looked at the trough dolutegravir levels they did go down by 50% with 3HP but still the median levels were over the, were higher than the threshold that sometimes is used to think to um, establish dolutegravir efficacy and most importantly virologic suppression was maintained in all of the people during the time they were getting 3HP this is my last slide before i sum up i'm going to write it in one second um, um, this is some, a couple of hep C uh, headlines. Among 305 MSM here in New York City who have HIV who had hep C clearance, either spontaneous or treatment-induced, 12% of them had hep C reinfection, and the median time was about two years after clearance. The, in the first prospective study of treatment of HIV, hep C, and pregnancy, eight, in, uh, eight women, all of them were cured with sofosbuvir the diposphere. We clearly need larger studies, including of pan-genotypic agents, And then progress towards what's now been called hep micro elimination. This is elimination in a clinic or in a region. Uh, Hopkins looked at over 590 people who were co-infected. As of March of last year, a year ago, they've cured almost two-thirds of them. Another third need to, to still be cured, and obviously those may be some of the hardest to cure. So here's my summary. Uh, there's a drop in HIV incidence that appears to be slowing we need to redouble our efforts to diagnose, treat, and prevent HIV. The second HIV remission after stem cell transplant with a a co-receptor-deleted bone marrow, we need to develop less toxic methods to modulate CCR5 and other co-receptors, perhaps through gene therapy. For PrEP, daily TAF FTC is non-inferior to TDF FTC. We can talk about on-demand dosing, perhaps, during the discussion at least in MSM and transgender women. It's not been studied in cisgender women. It's not been studied with on-demand dosing. Long-acting cabotegravir, rilpivirine looks um, comparable to oral ART. Accumulating evidence that integrase inhibitors are associated with weight gain, what to do about it isn't clear, and be alert for hep C infection, um, reinfection in your um, uh, MSM with HIV. I'll stop there. Uh, happy to take questions.
0: So um, I'm worried about the podium because it looks like it slides around. So we're going to try to secure it so we don't have a speaker and the podium yes,
1: and an audience. launching into the,
0: into the crowd. Um, really great, Raj. Um, and I have a stack of questions, so I'm going to try to, to handle pepper. question cards with a microphone. Um, let me just say, what, what coming back from Croy, uh what are your major take-homes for your practice? How did your practice change after CRI? You
1: know, I think probably a lot of it is the, the ART and PrEP section. So I think for people who have, say, renal dysfunction or who are having trouble with TDF um, but need PrEP, this is the, the uh, DISCOVER study is going to give me an option for people who, for example, have a creatinine clearance now of 50 or 45 or something where I still need them on PrEP, want them on PrEP, but I'm worried about using TDF. I think the cabotegravir willprivine data is really interesting. The question is who to use it in. Should you use it in your person who's doing fine on a daily uh, pill, also taking a statin? Are they really going to come in 12 times a year um, to get an injection? This is not self-administered. This is administered uh, in a clinical setting or in a pharmacy. But I think for some people, that's really going to be an attractive option. When I ask patients, perhaps you have the same perspective. A lot of them say they want something like that. They don't want to take a daily pill. And then the weight gain. Those are my three take-home okay. lessons.
0: So um, a couple questions on uh, on TAF um, looks interesting. Uh, a, do we still need to monitor renal function in people uh, on TAF? Um, and um, when do you think this is going to be available for prescription and approved for uh, for prep?
1: Two good questions. So monitoring. Um, so. When TAF started being used widely for treatment, the, the DHS guidelines, at least, recommend still monitoring as we do for TDF, which is either every six months or every um, year uh, UAs and sometimes urine protein and, and serum creatinines. I have generally been doing that, but I've seen very little clinically um, uh, significant proteinuria or other TAF toxicities, so instead of doing it every six months, I've been doing it closer to about a year. Um, in terms of using this for PrEP, this is not FDA-approved for PrEP. These data are a week or two old or less, um, and so it's not FDA-approved yet. Um, in Massachusetts, when I spoke of about a, three or four days ago, our HDAP folks said, or our prep folks said, our drug assistance program said, that on a case-by-case basis, they'll consider TAF. I think it would be at this point for someone who's having renal dysfunction or some other uh, osteoporosis or something like that. I'm interested, maybe during the discussion, or doing TRIPS PrEP cases to hear where in New York State PrEP uh, TAP is going to end up. I think the on-demand discussion we should have this afternoon as well, and what about women? I think that'll be a good point for the PrEP panel.
0: Uh, Any sense of when the injectables might be approved for clinical use?
1: I heard that they're going to get filed in terms of a new drug application in April of this year, and then the FDA essentially has somewhere between 8 to 12 months to make
0: a determination.
1: So probably not this calendar year, but probably uh, next year uh, is what I would say.
0: Uh, and here's an interesting question. So uh, we heard b- briefly about the possibility of birth defects. You'll hear more well. yeah. uh, with Um With the long-term uh, injectables, any thought to birth control for women yeah. uh, on long-acting in
1: Absolutely fantastic question. I wish I had a fantastic answer. I think Dr. Nockland is going to give us that answer this afternoon, but what I will say is what came out of this meeting, and you'll hear more this afternoon, is at least Raltegravir data around the time of conception, there's more and more support for the safety in the periconception area, but still not vast numbers, hundreds, not thousands of women who conceived while well on Raltegravir. We'll go through, she'll go through the data for daliotegavir. I will say, if you look at the DHS guidelines for perinatal transmission, they actually advise against using two drug therapy during pregnancy. Um, so I would say probably right now I would not consider cabotegravir and rilpivirine um, in the context of someone who's trying to conceive. So not just for the birth defect, but because they recommend against two drug
0: therapy. So some really uh, great questions about the uh, the, the cure. Um, do we ne- do you need GVH to get a cure in these uh, in yeah. these transplants? Yeah. Um, and. What are we doing in terms of screening uh, patients with malignancies uh, for uh, the, the um, deleted uh, mutants, and how frequent are those in the donor pool?
1: Okay, good, good questions. Maybe if you can put this. So this is a comparison of the London patient to the Berlin patient. One point about the Berlin patient, not only did he get a donor recipient transplant from a deleted donor, but he himself, the Berlin patient, was heterozygous for that mutation, whereas the London patient had a wild-type co-receptor. The question here is um, um, what is the frequency of this in the general population? It's about 1% of Caucasians have this um, CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. About 10% have the heterozygous mutation. In terms of um, GVHD, um, the both individuals, the Berlin patient and the um, um, London patient had mild GVHD. The London patient, at least, didn't require additional immunosuppressive therapy. He had gastrointestinal GVHD. The question is, do you get a graft? You know, there's this idea of graft versus leukemia effect that the oncologists talk about. Do you get a graft versus HIV effect? And we we obviously don't know yet, but that's an intriguing idea. So
0: So, uh, along those lines, um, you know, the CCR5 effect is interesting. These are people that have CCR5. Why don't we why don't we see a cure with uh, Maraviroc? Uh, we have a good drug that blocks CCR5 entry. Why doesn't that cure HIV?
1: I think the key here is that obviously Maraviroc, once you stop taking it, the um, the, the drug goes away. What's unique about these two individuals and what makes them exceptional is they're, all of their immune cells where HIV lives have been replaced by CCR5-negative um, cells. So unlike with Maraviroc, where once the drug is gone, uh, the... The cells still have CCR5. If there's a reservoir that's still present, um, those cells can regrow. Here the donor can't support HIV replication. And there there may be something with all this conditioning. Even though the London patient got reduced intensity conditioning, he still got T cell depletion, this anti-CD52 antibody. He got um, uh, other chemotherapy, so there there may be the interplay.
0: So a, a question about the weight gain with integrase inhibitors. Uh, Does it plateau from your graphs that looked as though it was still perhaps increasing? Is this something that we really need to worry about in clinical practice or is this
1: or not? We should put Christine Erlandson on the uh, podium because she was one of the um, senior authors on um, one of the studies that showed this. But in many of the, um, so first of all, there is a return to health that we all know about. When you We know HIV is associated with wasting. We know that even leaving aside the integrase inhibitors, when you start ART, metabolic demands go down and people generally gain some weight. What that ACG study showed is that initial weight gain seemed to modulate, seemed to stabilize, and then when there was a switch, it began to go up again. Now, the studies vary a lot. Some show really clinically significant weight gain, we think, you know, six, seven kilograms, I mean, a lot of weight gain. Other studies show one or two kilograms, and so we need to figure out, you know, why the studies are showing different amounts. I would say anecdotally, I have patients who have gained weight on integrase inhibitors at does tend to eventually stabilize, but I don't yet know what to do about it. And I'm hoping someone uh, in the front row will, will tell us in the future what to do about integrase inhibitor associated weight gain.
0: So here's my own off the wall question and what about HIV negative people? Would you expect to see weight gain? Could this be a treatment for yeah. people that need to gain weight? Yeah.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> if there are know, any. I was going to say, I don't know. <laughs> Too many, too many such people. But, um, but the um, for that really niche market. <laughs> We're all um, looking. May- maybe we could do an anti integration editor. How about that? So, so, a television. <laughs> So Rafi Landowicz's cabotegravir HPTN study looked at HIV negatives, and in that study, cabotegravir, a different integrase inhibitor, was not associated with weight gain. It wasn't a gigantic study, but so it may be something about the interplay between the integrase inhibitor and the virus. Somebody in the audience in in the um, theme discussion on this speculated maybe people are gaining more weight because the integrase inhibitors are better at reducing the virus, reducing the amount of metabolic need. Maybe there's still a little bit of metabolic excess in people not in integrated inhibitors. This is all pure yes. speculation. Or uh, maybe they feel less nauseous. Who knows? Uh, we don't know what the mechanism is of um, this weight gain. I think that there's consensus on is that we don't know what the mechanism
0: is. So, so a question about uh, uh, Integrating, not integrase, but integrating uh, TB treatment and yeah. ARV treatment, yeah. uh, switching around the ARVs. This is in a patient, sounds like, who is being actively treated for TB, but do you want to comment on?
1: Yeah, I would say in someone, if you're treating latent TB, um, you can treat latent TB with kind of um, well support if they're on a efavirenz. That's so no problem. If they're on an integrase inhibitor, you can also treat latent TB. But then you should be cognizant at, at least for, so for example, I showed you that 3-HP is fine with Raltegravir. I would not use it with Tegavir, as I mentioned before. And I'm beginning to get some comfort level using it with dalu I wouldn't use it with elvitegravir Kobe. Same issue with the cobi that You don't want to use a, a rifamycin. Uh, for active TB, the point about active TB, and there, um, I didn't have time to go through active TB this time. For active TB worldwide, we have hundreds of thousands of people on efavirenz and active TB drugs. We probably have good data now for raltegravir with active TB, but you, there you got to give it, um, you have to increase the dose. You have to double the dose of raltegravir. And similarly, for active TB on dolutegravir, give it twice a day. Give it 50 milligrams twice a day. There were data at last year's CROI that, that showed in active TB that you can use dolutegravir if you give it twice a day. Same point about big You can't give uh, big in someone with active TB, you can't overcome that rifamycin issue uh, with uh, Bictegavir, and same issue with l vitegavir off the table. for active
0: You mentioned in uh, Brad Hare's uh, uh, study that there were no cisgender uh, uh, yeah. women. Um, are there concerns about TAF in vaginal uh, mucosa, yeah. and uh, is, is there, are the studies that are going to help shed light on that?
1: That is a really great question. Um, so there are some data, um, kind of, um, pharmacokinetic tissue-based data uh, raising some concerns about TAF in the vaginal mucosa. I will be interested in Tripp's perspective and others on this when he talks this afternoon, but um, I hear that there will be some data coming in the future on cisgender women and TAF and PrEP, but we don't have it yet is what I would say. And so I would say right now I would probably Personally, not go to TAF FTC in um, a cisgender woman if she has normal renal function, no osteoporosis. I would right now use TDF FTC. That's my, my perspective. So.
0: so quick question, uh, was tropism assay done in the in the London patient before his transplant? Did, did they know yes. going into it that he was a CCR5?
1: That, that's a, also a very good question. It turns out they had, they had the ability to look at his pre-transplant virus, um, and they were able to find that it was CCR5 tropic. I don't know if they knew that going into the transplant, but they knew it before they stopped ART, for sure. Uh, Before they stopped ART, they were able to figure out that this person's virus did not use CXCR4, so that's an important point.
0: I've got way too many (laughs) cards for my fingers. I'm trying to (laughs) juggle them. Um, uh, Was was the Hodgkin's lymphoma thought to be uh, from his HIV infection?
1: Good question. So there is about an eightfold increased risk of Hodgkin lymphoma in people with HIV. It's not the hundredfold risk that you get with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, but there is an increased risk of Hodgkin. So yes, there may be a connection there. It's particularly the uh, nodular sclerosis and uh, lymphocyte-depleted type. I don't know what his Hodgkin's subtype was,
0: but there is an association between Hodgkin's and HIV. And then um, maybe uh, one question, on the replicones, actually a couple cards came back, yeah. and is that something that we should be thinking about practically?
1: What I took away practically, I think it's an interesting thing for the cure field um, research-wise to think about, but I think um, clinically what I take away is, if I and I do have patients just like 71% of you who've got viral loads between 20 to 200, and they've been like that year after year. I'm less prone, I mean, I do ask about adherence. I do make sure they're not taking any meds that interact with their ART because that could be a problem. But I'm less worried now than I was going into the meeting that they're uh, likely to break through. I think probably they have an expanded clone that's making a bit of this virus. It's not really replicating. It's just being spewed out by these infected cells. But those integration sites being all the same gave me some
0: confidence that it's probably not turning over. But should we be so lucky as to have a cure that might be another yeah. target that Maybe we're going to fix? Exp- to target, and, and the ahead. ACG
1: is talking about creating a group of people who have these replicons to try to study how to get rid of them. That's true. Great, thanks, Raj. Yes. Very
0: much.